You're listening to the Bible teachings of Reality Church Stockton. For more info, please visit our website at realitystockton.com. Well, um, when Michelle and I years ago lived briefly in London, um, I would walk past this very old church that was up on top of a hill. And it was really interesting because it was set up right on the middle of the hill and then all of the streets and all of the neighborhoods around it sort of circled around this. The streets sort of curved. So I asked someone why that is and really it had to do with city planning back in the day that the church was built first and then everything around it was developed. And it was literally and symbolically, the, the center of town, everything centered on worship. And the interesting thing about this church specifically is it had a rooster up on the steeple, which was from the days of the Protestant English Reformation. And it was the, it was the proclamation of a new day is dawning. But the, the church that I'm referring to, and like many historic church buildings, is now just the shell of what used to be. It's stones, it's stained glass, it's arches sort of memorialize this past. And while it still is the center of this borough, it is still geographically the center of this portion of town, it had no significant impact on the area. I visited another church across town where the rector or the pastor uh, was very warm, very welcoming, but it w- became abundantly clear from the moment I met him that he had settled for becoming a church historian. There was really no congregation to pastor. He was now the caretaker of a space and the keeper of the heritage. And he went on and on about the history of this church and the famous parishioners, apparently the original Romeo in Shakespeare's Romeo and Juliet is buried in the crypt. <laughs> which is kind of creepy, but cool. He talked about the the important heritage of that plot. Apparently, some of the first Christians in London under the Roman Empire gathered in that place. But here it was, a vacant building, a, a relic of what used to be at a very pivotal point with a huge question mark lingering over them. Will this continue to crumble or will the glory fill the house again? How are people and places renewed? That is the million dollar question. How are people and places renewed? Is it more activity? Is it just more ministries, more outreach, more social good, open a food pantry, then we'll see this place come alive? Is it more creativity? If we just engage the artistic community, if we just build bridges to the young people? Is it more diversity? We just place people in strategic positions to expand representation? Is it stronger leadership if we just get the right group of people in the room who have clear vision and great ideas and a little bit of charisma? That'll do it. See, as good as all of these things are, they're the cart before the horse. They're the signs of life, but they are not the source of life because they cannot replicate or reproduce the work of the Holy Spirit. And what we see here in Nehemiah 11 and 12 is that the people of God in the places that they occupy are made alive and they are renewed through 
restoring worship to the one true living God. How does God bring a people alive again? It's through worship. Now, if you were to summarize Nehemiah, it would be easy to think Nehemiah is the book of the Bible in the Old Testament where they rebuild the wall in Jerusalem. And that's fair. It's a prominent theme. But here's the interesting thing. This whole building project, the wall, that ends in in chapter 6. So earlier than halfway through the book, the project is completed. So clearly there's something bigger going on here. What is Nehemiah about? And it's about God bringing renewal to his people. It's about the work of building them up in prayer and worship and devotion to God and the things of God. It's about God transforming a community to reflect his glory and reflect his character to the nations in order to serve as an outpost for the kingdom of God here on earth. That was God's vision for Jerusalem. That was their calling. And now, this is what God is doing through the church in the new covenant of Jesus Christ. We read in the New Testament in 1 Peter these words, you yourself are like living stones and are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. In other words, the world should be able to look into the church, into the community of believers centered around Jesus Christ and see something that resembles the life of heaven, the glory of God breaking in. Now, if you're taking notes, there are two themes that are going to help frame this passage. There's a lot here, and as you can probably recognize we had to be sort of selective on what we're going to pay attention to here. So we're going to look at this passage under two headings, the holy city, and then secondly, heartfelt celebration. So let's look first at the holy city. Uh, Look with me again in chapter 11, verses 1 through 2. Now the leaders of the people lived in Jerusalem, and the rest of the people cast lots to bring one out of ten to live in Jerusalem, the what? the holy city, while nine out of ten remained in their own towns and other towns. And the people blessed all the men who willingly offered to live in Jerusalem. So I discovered a word. I like, I like when I learn like new words that have interesting meanings. So I, I learned a new word recently. It's called ruinen lust. It's a compound word. I think it's got German roots or something like that. And the definition is this. It's feeling irresistibly drawn to crumbling buildings and abandoned places. So you know the word uh, wanderlust, you know? But this is ruin in lust. It's irresistibly drawn to broken, crumbling places. So when I was a young man, I lived uh, up in Sacramento area and I worked as an estimator for a floor covering business. And we were bidding on this huge job. It was an old Air Force base that we, they were seeking to convert into an office complex. Huge building. It was sort of square, and in the middle, it had an old abandoned garden atrium. And so I come into this building, just, you look down the hallways, and it's just forever. And I walk in, and what's Immediately noticeable about this space is no one has occupied this for a long, long time. It was a Cold War era building that was just abandoned. 
And as you walk down the hallways, you see where the vines and the plant life from that garden atrium in the middle had begun to grow under the doors. So picture this with me. Into the hallways, on the walls, and they're sort of growing down the hallways. As you walk down the hallways, the fluorescent tube lights are dangling and flickering. Do you see it in your mind? It's a zombie apocalypse movie before Walking Dead or whatever. And I remember thinking this is the most terrifying thing and the most fascinating thing. Now, here's the deal. It's one thing to like visiting ruins. It's one thing to be intrigued by these crumbling old buildings and these, you know, these, these old historic places. But it's an entirely different thing to live there. And that is the scenario here in chapter 11. Now, a little bit of biblical history here. In prior generations, the nation of Judah, or the people, the Hebrew people, had rebelled against God, and as he had warned them, judgment came through invasion. The city of Jerusalem was ransacked, abandoned, the people of God were exiled into foreign nations, and the city lay desolate and in ruins for nearly a century. Just weather and animals and wear and tear for nearly a century. And as the people slowly began to move back in, the priority was first, as we see in Ezra, to rebuild the temple. And then, as we see here in Nehemiah, the next priority was to fortify the city and rebuild the wall. But here's the deal. Hardly anyone actually lived in Jerusalem. They rebuilt the temple. They were working on the wall. But no one had rebuilt the homes. And it was far more desirable and practical to live in the neighboring towns, in the suburbs. And so what the leaders realize is that Jerusalem is never going to shine again if it's empty, if it's vacant. It's going to require people moving back into the city. And so there's this like lottery that no one wants to win, right? And the lottery is if your name is selected, you're one of the 10% that has to move back into the city. Now how they enforce that, I don't know. But you draw, you know, the short straw, you're like, oh, Jerusalem it is. Always wanted to live there. Great, right? Now, cities are an important part of the storyline of Scripture, really from the beginning to the end. In fact, if you fast forward to the book of Revelation, which is at the very end of your Bible, we get a glimpse into what God is going to unveil at the very end of time, what the whole story, what the whole narrative has really been leading up to. So think about it this way. If redemptive history, if the, the story of Jesus saving from beginning to end was just one long musical masterpiece, then the crescendo, where the music reaches its like final loudest peak moments, the curtains finally open, the lights shine brightest, that very moment in the narrative of scripture would be the unveiling of a city. Did you know that? Revelation 21, and I saw the what? The holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And so this city here in Nehemiah, the earthly Jerusalem, was to be a symbol and a sign of the future city of God, a microcosm of heaven, just as the church today is to be. It was to be the place where people recognized God dwells there. 
This is where the living God is, is worshipped. This is a place that functions differently than anywhere else. This is a place of justice and peace or shalom. In fact, listen to how the psalmist describes Jerusalem. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised in the city of our God. His holy mountain, beautiful in elevation, is the joy of all the earth. Mount Zion in the far north, the city of the great king. This was the reputation of Jerusalem. This was the vision for this city. And here it is now in absolute ruins. It's rubble. Joy of all the earth, yeah, right. They can't even convince their own people to live there, let alone the nations being drawn there. You know what I find interesting about this? Is that from beginning to end, they still refer to it as the holy city. The holy city. It's a holy city in shambles, but it's still holy. Why? Because holy is a status that God assigns to that which belongs to him. Holy is a status, status that, that cannot be stripped away no matter how broken things get. And what's true of Jerusalem is true of his people today. This should cause Christians today to consider our identity in Jesus Christ, us who are referred to in the New Testament as holy and beloved, a holy priesthood. It's not a title that is earned by being well put together, nor is it a title that is stripped to us, stripped from us when we are broken into pieces. It's a title given by God, and it's something we are called to live into, holy. And what we have here is a small group of people investing their lives in the city, and now, because of this status that God has given them, beginning to claim each scattered stone for the kingdom of God. It may be a mess, they say, but it's a holy mess. And what they're exercising right now is what you could call prophetic vision. Vision. Derwin Gray describes vision like this. He said, vision is the God-inspired ability to see a future that does not yet exist, but should this future is so Messiah-exalting and life-giving that people run into the future and then drag it back into the present. In other words, prophetic vision is being, not being content with, well, one day it will happen. It's a people saying, do it in our time, God. Yeah, there were people moving into Jerusalem very reluctantly. Yeah, they had to pull the short straw. But it also says that there were a group of leaders that already lived in Jerusalem. And clearly they weren't there for what it was. They were there for what it would be. They were envisioning what God had actually spoken and promised of through the prophets about the city one day shining again. They were hinging their hope on what God said would be. For instance, Zechariah chapter 8 says this, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Old men and old women shall again sit in the streets of Jerusalem, each with staff in hand because of great age. 
And the streets of the city shall be full of boys and girls playing in the streets. Thus says the Lord of hosts, if it is marvelous in the sight of the remnant of this people in those days, should it also be marvelous in my sight, declares the Lord of hosts. Thus says the Lord of hosts, behold, I will save my people from the east country and from the west country, and I will bring them to dwell in the midst of Jerusalem, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God in faithfulness and righteousness. They read the prophecies, and they said, that could be us. What if it was in our time? They're seeing beyond the rubble. They're envisioning these streets filled again with children playing in safety and joy. They're seeing a city renewed. And that's what faith does. Hebrews chapter 11 says that now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. The conviction of things not yet seen. And this is the effect, reality that faith has to have on us as well. This is the way that faith has to be living and daring and at work almost fell off the step there in our congregation as well. When we see the brokenness and sin of the church, and I don't just mean the church at large, I mean our church. When we see devastating behaviors from Christians and leaders, when we continue to to see the stats about Christianity declining in the West. When we're not seeing the results of the investment that we had one day hoped for. When we're being challenged to build and prepare for future generations yet to come, we have to be willing to keep running into that future and be those who drag it back into the present. They knew that the city was holy to the Lord and it one day would shine again. They didn't know what exactly it was gonna look like. They didn't know when it was gonna be done, but they knew that it was one day gonna be true. And they dared to believe that it could be them. And we today have an even greater confidence than they had. Now the question I, I want us to think about here is how does God call a far from perfect people holy? Even as I I spoke that over you, holy and beloved, you're like, "Mm, not me. I don't think you know me. If you knew me, I don't think you would describe me like that. But how does God call his people holy? Because it's not just a status, it's actually a condition. Look at me in chapter 12, verse 30. And the priests and the Levites purified themselves. They purified the people and the gates and the wall. So we see this at the start of the building project before the building, the wall began. And now we see it here at the conclusion at the dedication of the wall. The priests consecrate the the wall and the people. They, They purify, they cleanse the people in the wall, which often included sacrifice of animals. Again, and then again, and then again, and then again. See, what they acknowledged was that the main obstacle to them living as God's holy people again in freedom and in joy was not the rubble of the city. The obstacle was not their circumstances that stood against them. Their obstacle wasn't even the enemies that were opposed to the work. What was the obstacle? Their own sin. Their sin is what led to this devastation in the first place. 
Their sin is what made them unfit to dwell in the presence of a holy God. Their sin would forever hold them back from experiencing the renewal that they longed for. And so it is with us. And so it is with us. In order for us to live and to flourish and to live into this vision of being a holy city set apart for God, as a foretaste of heaven and as an outpost of the kingdom of God on earth, then our sin too needs to be dealt with. We too need to be purified. We too need to be holy as God is holy. But not with the blood of animals. Requiring a a sacrifice after sacrifice and year after year and priest after priest and ceremony after ceremony Ritual after ritual and tradition after tradition after tradition. And the gospel speaks a better word. We're told in Hebrews chapter 10 this, and every priest stands daily at his service offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, He sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, what are we talking about here? The cross. By one single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. For all those who are set apart by faith. This is how we too can be called and actually live in to this calling of being a holy priesthood. This is how we receive that irrevocable title. It's not our devotion. It's not our sacrifices for God. It's not our good works. It's not our put togetherness. It's through a faith and repentance in Jesus Christ who was sacrificed on the cross for our cleansing and then was raised on the third day to make us whole again. It's through the gospel. It's through submission to the good news of Christ and him crucified. It's through the Jesus who is now seated at the right hand of God, awaiting the day he will restore all things. It's through now the giving of the Holy Spirit who is at work in us to sanctify us and to strengthen us for a life of holiness. It's because our Jesus, our King, reigns victorious over Satan, sin, and death, now and forevermore. Holy city. And secondly and finally, we see a heart-filled celebration. Look with me again in chapter 12, verse 27 and 31. At the dedication of the wall of Jerusalem, they sought the Levites in their places to bring them to Jerusalem to celebrate the dedication with gladness, with thanksgivings and with singing, with cymbals, harps, and lyres. You know what I love about all this? Is not only is this people celebrating, they're like losing their minds in celebration. That has been my prayer for our church. Just increase our celebration for the things that God has done in our midst. But you know what I find really interesting about this? They're not only celebrating what God has done through the rebuilding of this wall, but they're celebrating on the wall. 
Now, if you've just joined us in the last few weeks, that may not mean a lot to you, but if you've been here since the beginning of the story, story of Nehemiah, that means a lot, because if you remember in chapter four, there's this punk named Tobiah. <laughs> and he's not original. He's not even like the main enemy. He's like the, oh yeah, guy that stands next to the main enemy. And Sambalot is like, you guys suck, and the Lord's abandoned you. He's like hitting hard, and he's cutting deep. And then Tobiah chimes in, and he's like, oh yeah, when you build a wall, even a fox will climb on it, and that wall will crum come crumbling down. Like sick burn, bro, <laughs> sick burn. But remember that? Even if a fox walks on your wall, it's going to come crumbling down. What does Nehemiah do? Get up on that wall. In fact, let's get the whole freaking choir up there. And let's show them what our God can do. Little, little story. Eight years ago, um, this month actually, I stepped into this role here at Reality. And we went through a very difficult leadership transition. I'll spare you all the details. Uh, we went through a really difficult leadership transition. We had little to zero outside support from other churches. We had very unhealthy, ungodly patterns in this church that had emerged and needed to be addressed in really dramatic ways. Um, we had just come off of a season of an attempted church split. There were a lot of hurts. There were a lot of frustrations. There was a lot of confusion in our church. A lot of questions about the future of this church. We had been... On top of all that, we'd been in the red financially for a long time. Um, over about the course of a year, because of those serious dramatic changes, uh, the church shrunk almost in half at that time. Um, one pastor, I'll never forget, one pastor told me, he's like, hey, I think it may be better that if like Reality Church Stockton just didn't exist anymore. Maybe you should just shut this thing down. I remember having one member uh, tell me very clearly and boldly that uh, he could not stand my preaching so much that he couldn't abide and that I would be the reason that Reality Church died within a year. Yeah, thank you. And on and on and on. And that is not for sympathy at all. I'm a big boy. And that's not even half of it, actually. But the reason I want to I share that is I want to give you a little bit of insight into why I am so passionate about celebrating what God is doing in his church today. And why I'm so adamant about even like the smallest victories are Christ's victories in our midst. This is why I have so much joy every time uh, there's a new baby in the church. Every new marriage, every time someone puts their faith in Jesus and wants to get baptized, every time an individual or a family has the guts to commit themselves to this church, why I'm so overjoyed when I encounter people who are repenting and believing in the gospel and their lives are being transformed and when I'm seeing people growing in their understanding of God's word and getting passionate about the gospel every single week that we're here growing together feels like grace, feels like borrowed time. And I hope to never lose that wonder. And I hope to never stop calling you to celebrate the wonder as well. Here in Nehemiah, all the song leaders and all the choirs move throughout the city. It says a large group goes one way, 
Another large choir goes the other way until pretty much the entire city of Jerusalem is surrounded by worshipers. And as I'm reading this passage, it's very reminiscent of the walls of Jericho. If you are familiar with the story earlier in the Old Testament, where the people of God surround the city of Jericho and then they blow the trumpets and the people raise a, a big shout. And what happens? The walls come down. But here it's like a reversal of that happening. These are the songs of God restoring. This is the shout of being raised again. This, this is the celebration of God building his people up. And I think it's even more true for us, this side of the resurrection. I think we have even more reason and confidence and hope to sing that song with joy. Look at me in verse I'm going to have to cut our time here. Sorry. Look at me in verse 43. And they offered great sacrifices that day and rejoiced. For God had made them rejoice with great joy. I love that. You're sitting here today and like, I don't have an ounce of joy in me. That's okay. God can make you rejoice. The women and the children also rejoiced and the joy of Jerusalem was heard far away. Now remember, the wall is complete but the city is still in ruins. It's a shell, but it's still a mess. And the application for us here is that when God is the source of your joy, you can still celebrate even when you're standing in the ruins of your life. There's a, a picture that I keep coming back to. I've shared this countless times now with you. I'm sure you're sick of it if you've been here for a while. It's an individual known as the cellist of Sarajevo. 1992, in active war in Bosnia, this individual, I can't pronounce his name, put on a tuxedo every single day, brought out his cello, sat in the middle of bomb craters as bullets are whizzing past him, and would fill the city with the beautiful sounds of music. And his intention was this, was to fill the streets with the hope that there is life beyond these ruins. That there's something greater than what you're seeing and experiencing right now. And this is what we're doing every time we gather to celebrate the greatness of God. When we sing the good news of Jesus Christ through the power of the Holy Spirit. When men and women and children sing the songs of joy that resonate with others. Now, you know, the statement here that it was heard far away, that their, their shouts were heard far away, should actually trigger something in the memory of the reader. Um, a, lot of, a, lot of commentary, a lot of commentators believe that Ezra and Nehemiah were actually just one book, Ezra and Nehemiah, the rebuilding of the temple, the rebuilding of the wall. And back at the very beginning of the story, the beginning of the story of Ezra, when the foundation of the temple was laid, nothing had been rebuilt, no walls, no steeple, just like a slab floor. It says that everyone gathered to celebrate in the same way. Turns out God's people celebrate even the smallest things. And it says the Levites... And all the, the uh, musicians gathered and they sung loud shouts of praise. And we're told this in Ezra chapter 3. And all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord. Because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. That's all. But many of the priests and the Levites and heads of the father's house's old men. Who had seen the first house. Who had seen the prior glory of the temple. 
wept with a loud voice when they saw the foundation of this house being laid. Though many shouted aloud for joy, so that the people could not distinguish the sound of the joyful shout from the sound of the people's weeping, for the people shouted with a great shout and the sound was heard far away. So the sound heard far away was a confusing mix of joy and sorrow. The people who had never seen the temple before saying, this is awesome, look what God is doing in our midst. And a particularly older generation that said, I don't see it, man. I don't see it. How on earth is this ever going to match what we had? You know what the opposite of prophetic vision is? The opposite of seeing a place and a people through the eyes of hope? It's nostalgia. I've never seen, let me say it differently, there's not much more devastating Not much more of a devastating thing in the life of a church than people who are insisting on the dream of nostalgia. Nostalgia, what is nostalgia? It's looking back into the past with like rosy colored glasses, some idealized version of the past that's probably not realistic, and then comparing everything in the present to what used to be. We do this in politics. We do this in cities, we do this in the church. And what's worse is that nostalgia then leads to cynicism, which leads to criticism, which leads to a lot of people being confused. So the question I wanna ask you today is what sound are you contributing? What is being heard? But here in Nehemiah, we see a significant shift that's occurred. One that could only be credited to God. So let me, let me just put a final point on this. Here in Nehemiah, we see a significant shift that's occurred, one that could only be credited to God. And it's now the people, the unified sound of the people is rejoicing. The culture of cynicism has been replaced with a culture of celebration. The naysayers have been drowned out by the songs of praise and despair is slowly but surely giving way to hope. In the New Testament, the, uh, the Apostle Paul gives us this amazing vision that connects the dots here for what we see in Nehemiah to what we can experience through the life of Jesus Christ. He says this, but thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. That is our prayer today, that through us, through our praise, through our unified celebration and rejoicing that the fragrance of Christ would spread about in our city and beyond. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you.